Where is my honor in the subtitle, The Living God? And we started into it last week from the standpoint of how we might be involved in that, and I only got through chapter 42 of Isaiah. But these chapters we're in from 40 onward, for quite a few, are talking about the church at the end time. We saw that not many will be willing to listen in in verse 23 uh, of chapter 42. He said, Who among you will give ear to this? Who will hearken and hear for the time to come? So this was not written for just back then, but it's written for the time to come. And the time has now come. And it says that God is the one who gave Jacob for a spoil because we had sinned. Now, going on to chapter 43, where I want to pick up today, it says, But now thus says the Eternal that created you, O Jacob, and he that formed you, O Israel, fear not. Now, the traditional understanding of these scriptures would be that this is speaking of the physical nations of Israel, and really has nothing to do with the church, and even we who know better, well, it does have to do with physical Israel, but only in a secondary form, or a down-the-road-from-the-church form. But I think it would be good for a moment here for us to review the validity of that approach, because we do have new listeners who may not have heard some of those sermons in the past where I went into that in great detail. But I want to refer us to a couple of scriptures here to refresh this in our minds, lest we think, well, you know, he's applying this to the church, but it's referring to physical Israel. Let's go back to the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. And here Paul is telling the Hebrews that they are approaching God, ultimately, and not to be like Esau was, who did not hear and fear and would not repent and understand who it is that we are facing. Picking it up in verse 21, it says, And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. So he said, You're not come to... Mount Sinai, as Moses did, who was afraid because of the rumbling and the thunder and the volcanic activity on the mountain. But you, not Moses, but you, speaking to the what? New Testament church. So understand the context here. He, Paul is speaking to those Jews who are part of the New Testament church. And what does he say they are facing then? See, they had always looked back to Moses and to Sinai. But he's saying that is not the case today. You're looking somewhere else. Well, what and where were they looking? But you are come to Mount Zion. Not Sinai, but Zion. And unto the city of the living God the heavenly Jerusalem. So, the church is in the context of Zion and a heavenly Jerusalem to come, and to an innumerable company of angels, 
And you are also come to the general assembly and church of the firstborn. So he said, these are the names that you equate to or live with and are part of, which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Emmanuel the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than those sacrifices of Abel. So Christ's sacrifice is much bigger than any of those by far. So, he is saying that the term Zion and Jerusalem refer to not just physical Israel, but to the church. That is very important for us to understand. Let's go to Galatians now and pick up this other one. Galatians 6, verse 16. Well, verse 15. For in Christ Emmanuel, neither circumcision avails anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation, a new creature. Speaking to the New Testament church that had to be conformed or transformed into godliness instead of being conformed to the world. Like a new creation, a change. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace be on them, and mercy, and upon the Israel of God. So he makes a difference between physical Israel, whom God had what? Divorced. They were not of God anymore. Divorced means put away. Not of that husband, not of that God anymore. Christ summarily dismissed the Pharisees, Sadducees, and Essenes, and the leaders of the Jews, and said, I will not have anything to do with you again until you accept those whom I am sending, who are what? The twelve apostles, the church. So he put the church ahead of physical Israel. Paul understood that when he called the church he was addressing here in Galatia the Israel of God. So it becomes very plain that... When we examine the end-time prophecies, we can accept them and understand them in light of the church. So when it speaks of Jacob, of Israel, of Jerusalem, of Zion, the daughters of Zion, and so on, it's speaking first and foremost to the church who are now in the center of God's attention. It should be, I think, fairly easy for us to understand, but it makes we have to change our thinking that this is the case. All these prophets wrote about the latter days, did they not? They spoke frequently of the day of the Lord. They spoke of all of the chaos and the cataclysm and the climax of man's experience and Satan's rule on the earth in terms of the day of the Lord. Now, would not God be addressing the church in the end time, as opposed to just the physical nation whom he has already divorced? He will have nothing to do with them again until the millennium when Christ returns and gathers physical Israel. So the end time prophecies are written primarily to the church, and then secondarily to the physical nations, we have spiritual destruction. They are then going to have physical destruction. 
the spiritual destruction of the church is not complete. It's still continuing and shall for some time yet. And the physical destruction of the nation is about upon us. I've said this many times, but let's understand that when we're reading the prophecies of Isaiah about the time to come and the end time. And he makes many references to the day of the Lord and the end time prophecies as well. So now back to, well, no, wait a minute. I want to, I want to bring this out one more spot. He says here in chapter 43, fear not to Jacob and Israel. Spiritual Israel, let's address first. Let's go back for a moment to Zephaniah and here chapter 3. Zephaniah 3. This is just prior to Haggai. It's talking about the financial collapse in uh, chapter 1 of Zephaniah. It talks about gathering ourselves before that come upon us in chapter 2. And then down in chapter 3, he talks about how he will save out a meek and humble people. But down in verse 16 is what I want to address. In that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, remember that's referring again to the church at the end, Fear you not. Now, can you see the difference between what he would say to the church and what he would say to physical Israel? Physical Israel is about to go into captivity. One-third die of the sword, one-third of famine and pestilence, and one-third go into slavery. Now, that is something to fear. If he were talking to the physical nation here, why would he say, fear not? That's a whole lot to fear. Now, if he's talking to the called-out ones who are under God's protection, he would tell them, fear not. Because we do have God's protection. And to Zion, let not your hands be slack. In other words, to the church, to spiritual Zion, there is work to be done. So don't let your hands be idle. The eternal your God in the midst of you is mighty. Now, I don't think I tied these scriptures in Zephaniah and Haggai in when we went through uh, the sermons about using the term or the name Emmanuel. But Emmanuel means in the Hebrew, God with us. And here it says, God in the midst of you. Now, when it's said in Matthew 1, you call him Yeshua or Joshua or Jesus, they, in the future, will call him Emmanuel, not just God is salvation, Joshua, but God with us. Now, he tells the church in the end time, I am in the midst of you. That is the same as Emmanuel. God with us, or God with you. And He is mighty. He will save. Now, let's go on down to Haggai, because this one talks about the rebuilding of the temple in the latter days. The latter temple after the former has been destroyed. The former temple under Herbert Armstrong is now pretty much gone, and the latter is about to be built. Now, spiritually speaking, uh, it has to be built in each of us individually and as a church. But I think we can find, and I won't go there today, 
enough evidence in Scripture that this is also speaking of a physical temple, not just a spiritual, but both. The physical temple has to be defiled. The spiritual temple, in that sense, will not be, because when the physical one is defiled, the spiritual temple flees to the mountains. But the physical is defiled. And the Jews are not going to build the temple of God. Anyway, moving down in Haggai, uh, this is the time of Zerubbabel and Joshua, remember, of Zechariah 3 and 4 and Revelation 11, the two witnesses and the remnant of the people of the church that God draws together to build the end-time temple. And what does he say? He says, Fear before the eternal in verse 12 of chapter 1. That's what he tells us there in Isaiah 8. Don't fear the conspiracy. Fear me. Here he says, those who fear before the eternal. Notice verse 15. Then spake Haggai, the eternal's messenger, in the Lord's message to the people, saying, I am with you, says the eternal. God with us. In the context of Haggai, in the building of the end-time temple, and of the two witnesses, the term Emmanuel is referred to. God with you. So, I believe this gives timing for the use of the name Emmanuel. Go on down to chapter 2, verse 4. Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Eternal. And be strong, O Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest. And be strong, all you people of the land. So, it is not just the two witnesses, as the church used to look at it but it is the remnant people who are gathered together who are also involved in the building of the latter temple. It is a work that has to be done, not just a preaching to the world, but a work of God to be done in the end time. We'll see the timing of that in a moment. So he says, Be strong, all you people of the land, says the Eternal, and work. Same thing Zephaniah said. Don't let your hands be slack. Don't fear. Be strong. Work. For I am with you, says the Eternal of hosts. Uses the term for Emmanuel again. I am with you. Now, when is this? Without going into great detail to prove it. Verse 6, For thus says the Eternal of hosts, Yet once it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. So the temple has to be built a little while before God shakes the earth. That is when this is talking about. I will fill this house with glory, says the Eternal of hosts. And then verse 8 I'll hit right here because it says the silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the Eternal of hosts. Well, now that's put into the context why? Why? What gold? What silver? Keep that in the back of your mind. We'll get there either today or next time I speak. All right, so just before the earth is shaken, a temple will be built. A remnant will do it along with the two witnesses, but they are all witnesses of God. As we're about to see in Isaiah... And God with us, Emmanuel, is a term that will be used at that time, for God indeed will be with us if we are doing what he wants done in the right time and way.
Doesn't this sound a little presumptuous? Why? It's a scripture, isn't it? It's talking about a people who are willing to do this and whom God stirs to come and do it. So if you are included in one of those who is willing to repent and turn to God and obey Him and not be lackadaisical in your hands slack, then you are a prime candidate to come and build in the temple of God at the end. Okay? So it's not taking anything upon yourself. It's simply reading the Scripture and saying, I want to be one of those. I want to do what I need to do to be sure God stirs me and causes me to come be a part of what He is doing. That's not presumptuous. That's reading what God says, believing it, and then doing it. We're not here to try to fulfill prophecy. We're here to try to serve and seek God and fulfill His purposes in us, whatever they might be. And hopefully we can be a part of what he's talking about here. Now let's go back to Isaiah 43 and pick that story up again. I want to do reconfirm that background, not in great detail, it would take several sermons, but we have past sermons you can review <clears throat> which goes through that in minute detail. So let's understand in Isaiah 43, when he says Jacob here in Israel, he's talking about the Israel and the Jacob of God, the church, who are not to fear. The physical nation is to fear. Jeremiah tells us even, do not even pray for this nation, because they will not repent. Now, the church has opportunity to repent. The nation doesn't. They would only know what to do or who to repent to. For I have redeemed you. Now, Christ is called our Redeemer, is He not? He's redeemed us from this world. He's brought us out of it. So, when it talks about redemption here, it's a New Testament term that is carried over from the Old Testament. We've been redeemed from the world. I have redeemed you. He hasn't redeemed physical Israel, has He? He has divorced them. And they're going to stay in that state until Christ returns and sets up the millennium. I have called you by your name. You are mine. You speak of the one you are about to marry as yours. The one you divorced, you do, not con you do not refer to as mine. And in fact, if you've been around divorced people, it's anything but mine in most cases. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. Neither shall the flame kindle upon you. I think God is telling us here that the end time church is going to go through the same things that Israel went through at the Red Sea, at the backing up of the Jordan, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego thrown into the fire. And he tells us, fear not, you will not be burned. The flame will not ignite you. That's nice to know, considering that these things are about to come upon the church. 
Now, some are going to be protected, and some are going to have to go through these things. But that is to bring repentance. But the ones who truly obey God, he says, I'm going to protect them. Now, some are going to be martyred, but they may be the ones left behind. Those who are there to do God's work, like Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Daniel, and others, Moses, and so on, were protected, were they not? And he says, I'm going to do the same thing in the end. This is a prophecy. For I am the Eternal, your God, the Holy One of Israel. Now, is he alive or not? If you're going to believe these words about how I will protect you, you might better recognize the fact that he's the living God, that he is able to help. He's not dead or gone off somewhere. I am with you, he tells us at Haggai and other places. Isaiah 7 and 8 and 9. I gave Egypt for your ransom, Ethiopia and Seba for you. So he said, I saved you and I destroyed these peoples before you in order to save you. Now he did that with ancient Israel and he is going to do it again. Physical Israel is going to be destroyed and nations are going to be destroyed but God's people are going to be preserved out of it. Since you were precious in my sight, you have been honorable, and I have loved you. Therefore will I give men for you and people for your life. I will sacrifice other nations and other peoples to protect you. God is going to destroy the army that comes to destroy the church when they flee to a place of safety. Just one example, but there are others. Fear not, for I am with you. Again, Emmanuel, God with you. I will bring your seed from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, keep not back. Bring my sons from far and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Now, God made sure, when he was using Herbert Armstrong, that churches were raised up around the world. And those churches are basically defunct now. But I will guarantee you, there are faithful people all over the world to this day. And when God draws his remnant, as he says, I will stir them to come in Haggai... He's going to bring them from north, south, east, and west, from all over the world. All nationalities and peoples and languages are coming to one place to build God's temple and to be a light to the world, as we'll see shortly. Even everyone that is called by my name. Are the Catholics called by God's name? Are the Lutherans? Or the Shintoists, or the Buddhists, or the Hindus? No. Just His church. Even physical Israel today could not be said to be called by God's name. We are the church of God. Or one of the branches of it, if you're referring to us here specifically. But He has them all over the world that are not part of this group, and he is going to bring them all together as one group. 
everyone call by my name, for I have created him for my glory. Now, what did we just read in Galatians? We are a new creation, a new creature. Galatians 6, 16 or 17 there, or 15. What does he say here? I have created him for my glory. He has created Christians out of non-Christians. That's what he's saying here. That's what Paul was saying. A new creation. You are not what you used to be. He's created within you a temple of God. I have formed him. Yes, I have made him. Hasn't God formed and made and shaped each and every one of us with trials, tribulations, tests, sufferings, blessings? He has worked with us now for years to form us and to make us into those that can carry his name. We were not a people who could carry God's name prior to our conversion, were we? What were we? Would God have said, those are my witnesses right there that I'm God? You know, you're out doing all the things the world is doing. I don't think so. No, for him to say they carry my name, they have to be like him in his image. Not just physically, but in personality and character and mind. That's why it's so important. One of the reasons that we be as much like God as we can be because we are going to be a part of the witness that He is the living God. Now, human beings once in a while say, I'm not sure that's my kid. I'm not sure I would say, I want my name on that child because they might not be acting like you want them to act. We are told as we grow up, respect the family name. We want people to respect our family because of the way you act as a child. God is the same way. He wants us to respect the family name and to live according to the name of God. So who is he formed and who is he made? Us, the church. Called us out of the world, reformed us, remade us, transformed us. Romans 12, verse 1. Be you transformed, not conformed to the world. So, he addresses those people that he's going to gather together as a witness of his name. Bring forth the blind people that have eyes and the deaf that have ears. So this is speaking of spiritual blindness and deafness. You got eyes, you got ears, they can see and hear, but they don't see the spiritual things. They don't understand these scriptures we're reading right here. They don't have that important key that we are come not to Sinai, but to Zion and Jerusalem and to the living God. That is probably, if not the, one of the most important concepts to grasp if you are to understand Bible prophecy at all. With that one key, you can begin to truly understand Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the minor prophets, Daniel, Psalms, and so on. 
It's a key we did not have until 15, 16 years ago. We didn't really grasp it. We saw the Israel of God there, maybe by Paul in Galatians 6, but we didn't really grasp the meaning of it in terms of the prophecies. We understood it as a concept, not truly as a reality, if you will. So, wake up those that have eyes and ears that they can see and hear the real things. Verse 9, let all the nations be gathered together and let the people be assembled. Who among them can declare this and show us former things? Gather everybody up. How many of them can tell you what's really going on? I'll tell you, most of the church does not have a clue of what is going on. And you won't hear it preached very much in very many places. They just don't get it. Who among you can declare this and show us former things? Let them bring forth their witnesses that they may be justified. Or let them hear and say it is truth. So, get them together, tell them, and let them explain what is going on, or let them hear and say, that is right. That is the truth. Verse 10. First time he says this, out of at least three right here in this context as we go through. You are my witnesses, says the Eternal, and my servant whom I have chosen. Now he's talking about gathering these people from north, south, east, and west. Just as he says in Haggai, will stir the people to come build the temple. And he said, who? You. These that I formed in my image. These that carry my name. You are my witnesses. Speaking to the faithful of the church. The end time work is not about two witnesses. It is about the witness of the church. The two are only the leaders of that larger witness. He does say servant there. Zerubbabel will be the leader of the whole group. We have two witnesses at the end as a formality, as the main preachers and teachers, but... The rest are witnesses together. So let's not think that's something for two people to show up and do. This is something for a group of people, I suspect, several thousand to do. Using the 7,000 of Elijah mentioned that who had not bowed to Baal, and Paul reiterated that again. Or perhaps a thousand for each tribe, but he says 10% of the church. A remnant of the called out ones. So... That falls roughly in that seven to 12,000 range. I don't know exactly how many, but uh, that's some numbers to work off. You are my witnesses and my servant whom I have chosen. Doesn't he say, many will be called and few chosen. So this is a fulfillment of what Christ said there. He is choosing those that he will stir to come and build his latter temple. Now, whom I have chosen, 
Why? That you may know and believe me, and understand that I am He. He is calling out a remnant who will believe Him and know Him and know who He is. I think that this series of sermons is a critical one, not because I am giving them, but because God says in Malachi, Where is my honor? And then he goes on and on about how we do not honor Him and respect Him. And one of his key issues at the end time is not having people to honor him for who he is. So this is critical understanding for us is why it is important. These scriptures are unbelievably important. He doesn't want some people sitting on the fence. He doesn't want people who are lackadaisical, or Laodicean, if you want to use the term. He wants people who will work with their might, not let their hands be slack, but will be strong, have good courage, and fear not. He has always required that. Remember when Joshua took the people across the Red Sea into the Promised Land? Those were the exact same four words he used to talk to Joshua and the people. Fear not, be strong, be of good courage, and work. And he says the same thing in Zephaniah, Haggai, here in Isaiah, and many other places. Understand that I am He. Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. There is only one. Find Him. I, even I, am the Eternal. And beside me, there is no Savior. Now, the world is about to produce one that they will call the Savior. They're going to be produce one that they will call, I'm sure, Jesus. Now, we need to know the true God. There's only one. And we better know Him. I have declared and have saved. Has he saved Israel? No. Physical Israel? No. He's about to destroy it. He is referring to a remnant people here who are in a saved condition. We're saved out of that. We are set aside for salvation. We are not once saved, always saved. Don't bring that argument up. We are saved out of it. We are set aside to be his witnesses. And I have showed when there was no strange God among you. Therefore you are my witnesses, says the Eternal, that I am God. Now he is going to declare to this world that he is God. And he wants witnesses who will attest to that. These have to be people who will not be dismayed, who will not be, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here, getting old, uh, deceived. When the new Jesus stands up and says, I am the returned Christ, worship me. And the whole world will worship that beast, except those very few 
who know the law and the testimony of Christ. And he says, I want you to be my witnesses that I am God. Now, how important a position do you want in the world? That is the greatest honor that God could bestow upon us to say to us, I want you to be a witness that I'm God. You know, they call you into court to witness on accidents or murders or whatever. How much a greater witness as to who is the ruler of the universe? Wow. He's calling us, brethren, to do this job. Do we begin to grasp what I've railed at you about in the past, about don't come here just to save your behind? You're not here or supposed to be here just because you fear what the world could do to you and to come here to save your butt. You are come here to do a work and to stand up as a light on a hill and a candle as we read in Luke last night at Bible study to attest that God is God. In the face of the world, the whole world, who says, this new Jesus is God. You ready for this? Are we ready to fear not, to be of good courage and stand up as a light on a hill and shine in the eyes of the whole world who will hate that light? It's what God is asking us to do. Now, are we ready to put aside every sin that so easily besets us, every temptation, every trouble, every trauma, every selfishness, every greed, every personal choice, and put God first and focus on Him? That's what this is about. Put God first. Be His witness that He is God. A true, a faithful witness. Not a hypocrite. He wants no hypocrites. I don't think hypocrites are going to stand up too high when the time comes that they have to face what is about to come. We have to be true blue. Or he says in Isaiah 52, end of it, be you clean to bear the vessels of the eternal. Be a good witness that God is God. By our lives by the law and the testimony of our lives. There was no strange God among you, therefore you are my witnesses, the eternal, that I am God. See why we cannot have idols? See why we cannot put anything else before God? We can't do that. Because there is no strange God among us. We put away all our idols. We put God first. And therefore he can say, you are my witnesses because you don't have any idols. You don't have anything you put before me. You put me first in your life. Therefore you are a true witness that I am the living God because you worship me and me alone and nothing else. See why idolatry is such a horrid, horrid, that sounds 
such a wretched sin. Yes, before the day was, was, I am He, the God of creation, before night and day were even made. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. Doesn't He tell us in Revelation, you can go up into the stars or into the depths of the ocean or wherever, my hand will find you. You can't hide from me. And there's no one who can deliver you out of my hand. There are people right now who are building underground bunkers deep in the earth where they can live, they think, for years when the Holocaust hits. Spending billions of dollars to build these underground hideaways. They cannot deliver themselves out of God's hand. They might run from armies, but they can't hide from God. I will work, and who shall hold it back? Who will stop it? He's the living God, and whatever He says He is going to do is inexorable. It's immutable. It will happen. Verse 14, Thus says the Eternal, your Redeemer. Again, He's speaking to the church, the Redeemer of the called out ones. Now, He's going to redeem physical Israel later, so it does still apply in a larger, longer-term sense. But right now, he needs witnesses that he is God. Thus says the Eternal, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, For your sake I have sent to Babylon, and have brought down all their nobles and the Chaldeans, whose cry is in the ships. Remember Revelation 18, how the merchants are going to cry when the big marketplace of the world is cut off. That would be the United States of America, the only marketplace that has made the world rich. So he's speaking of the same time here. I am the Eternal, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. He is going to become King of kings and Lord of lords, our King. And we shall reign on the earth as His bride with Him. So he's talking to us first. Thus says the Eternal, which makes a way in the sea and a path in the mighty waters. He refers again back to uh, the Red Sea and to the Jordan. That's the God we're talking about here. Which brings forth the chariot and horse, the army and the power. They shall lie down together. They shall not rise. They are extinct. They are quenched as tow. He says, what I'm about to do is going to be akin to what happened at the Red Sea. Remember you not the former things, neither consider the things of old. Now, Jeremiah tells us that some of the things here at the end are going to become so dramatic that we would forget the Red Sea. It will be so powerful. And he's saying the same thing right here. Don't, don't think about these old things that he just brought it up, but he says, don't think about those things now. Behold, I will do a new thing. You won't just reminisce about the Red Sea and the Jordan and some of the things of the past. I'm going to do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. You shall not know it. I will even make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Spiritual wilderness, physical wilderness and desert. 
both. The beast of the field shall honor me. Where is my honor? He says, well, the beast of the field is going to honor me. Somebody's going to. The dragons and the owls, because I give waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to drink, to give drink to my people, my chosen. Even in their own little brains, the animals of the desert are going to be happy and satisfied. Now, they won't know God like we can know God. He's using somewhat of a metaphor here. But they're going to be content where they've not had much to drink, not much to eat, barely scraped by in the desert and the wilderness. Ha! Huh, things are better. You know, a happy coyote is a coyote with a full belly. A hungry coyote is not necessarily a happy coyote, or however you want to term it. But it's about the people. This people have I formed for myself. They shall show forth my praise. What an incredible honor, again, that God would create us, form us, even as he did Adam and Eve. A new creation, a new creature, as Paul put it. And we're here to show forth his praise, to give him honor, praise, and glory in the end time. How often does this story get preached in the Methodist church? How often does it get preached, sadly to say, in the church of God? It is unknown. You are privileged to be able to look at Isaiah and have your minds understand. That is a very rare thing. God is going to stir a remnant from the north, south, east, and west and have their minds open to what he is doing somewhere in the desert with someone soon. It will either be here or it will be somewhere near here. And I hope you and I are involved in it. I'm not going to say we're it. I'm going to say we are very good candidates for it because we are working hard at changing, growing, repenting, keeping God's law, and living our lives as a witness that we are the sons of the living Almighty God. That makes us candidates right there, not because we pat ourselves on the back. But aren't we part of the church? Part of those that God has formed for himself, called out of the world? Yes. Will he choose us to do and be a part of this witness? We hope. Verse 22. There is yet a problem, though. But you have not called upon me, O church of God, the Israel of God, Jacob. But you have been weary of me, O Israel. We went through the motions and worldwide, and then it broke apart, and people are still going through the motions, but they are not seeking God with their whole hearts. Ye 
You have not brought me the small cattle of your burnt offerings, neither have you honored me with your sacrifices. I have not caused you to serve with an offering, nor wearied you with incense. I'm not making you to go through all the rituals. He uses offerings here and sacrifices in terms or as as an analogy in the past, or things in the past, of the physical animal sacrifices and so on. But now we're to be a living sacrifice, Romans 12, 1 and 2 again. A living sacrifice. But he uses the same thing in Malachi where he says, where is my honor? And he says, you bring the polluted things to put on my altar. You give me the leftover time. You take care of yourself. You enjoy yourself. You enjoy the things you want to do. You make idols of all kinds. And you give me the time that's left over. He's not happy with that. That's why he blew the church apart. You have bought me no sweet cane with money, neither have you filled me with the fat of your sacrifices, but you have made me to serve with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. So he says, I am going to have this witness. You, the church, are my witnesses, but you have to come up to a certain standard. If you're going to be a witness that God is God, you can't be ho-hum about God. Ask a girl to marry and she says, Oh, well, uh, I don't know. Yeah, well, well, yeah, maybe. Is that what you want to hear when you ask her to marry you? I don't think so. You want to hear, yes, 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 yes. It's the way God is. He wants an eager bride. I, even I, am he that blots out your transgressions for my own sake and will not remember your sins. Not for our sake so much as his own reputation and his family name. He sent His Son to this earth to live and die in perfection that we might have our sins forgiven so that we fit in with the family name of perfection. That we are to become God. The bride of God, of Christ. And sin cannot exist in the new Jerusalem of God that is coming down. He says, without are sinners, corrupt and bastards and so on. Those who are defiled. They are not allowed inside. Therefore, the bride has to be perfection. And since we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God, then our sins have to be forgiven. And he's willing to do that. Remember Ezekiel 16? I'll clean you all up. I'll wash you with water, cleanse you with the washing of the water of the Word, as it is put in the New Testament. He's willing to do that for you and me. I will not remember your sins. Put me in remembrance. Let us plead together. Let's let's get together and work on this, God says. That you may be justified. The only way we can be justified is in the blood of Christ. And his church, his called out ones, are the only ones who fit that category today. Physical Israel someday will come there, but not now. 
Therefore I have profaned the princes of the sanctuary and have given Jacob to the curse and Israel to reproaches. Now is that not what has happened to the church today? God has done it. I have profaned the ministry and have given the church, spiritual Jacob, to the curse. Spewed out of God's mouth is a curse in itself. And Israel to reproach. Oh yeah, that worldwide church of God, that didn't last long, did it? What church are you talking about? I never heard of Armstrong. Used to, everybody almost had, if you talk to them on the street. Now very few have. Or, oh, wait a minute, let me think back. Maybe I did hear that 40 years ago. God has done this because He wants what? Holy, righteous, true witnesses that He is God. And we're here to learn to be that. That's why we're sitting in this room or listening on the telephone right now. We're here to be those people. Now, I go back once in a while to royalty. They start training those children from the time almost they're born. And what they need to do to comport themselves as princes and princesses. To be part of the royal family. They go through rigorous training. With all kinds of teachers and nannies and people to guide them and so on. To train them in a certain way. Now they don't always live up to it later, but boy they go through the training, I'll tell you what. Just like these kids right over here in Colorado City or from the time they're small babies are trained into polygamy. And that it's okay for a 13 or 14 year old girl to be given to a 50 or 60 year old man as a wife. And that if the prophet wants to, somewhere down the line 10, 20 years later, he can switch her to a different husband. What an incredible brainwashing Misuse and abuse, that is. And yet, they train them that way over and over throughout their lives so that that is acceptable to them. Now, how much higher a calling do we have? And sometimes maybe we grow weary of all the training and the yelling and the screaming and the shouting and the preaching and the you're not getting there yet. This is what you got to be. This is what you got to be. And it become, can become wearisome. It can become painful. But it's necessary. God said, cry aloud and spare not. If I'm going to save my hide, I have to do that. I can do nothing else than that. Sorry about that. God says that's what it's going to take. That's what it's going to take. Sadly, I'd like to stand here and preach smooth things, easy things. But he said, don't be that way. That's what people like to hear. Puts them right to sleep. Isn't one of the greatest indictments against the church is at the end time they all slumbered and slept? A watchman is supposed to cry aloud. Hey, there's danger. 
here's what you have to do to save yourself out of it, and here's what you have to do to please God and to be His witness that He is God. Isaiah is just laying it out for us here. All right, the church has been profaned. All right, that's sad. But it picks up here in chapter 44. Yet now here, you know, this, this is the condition you find yourselves in. Refra- profaned, cursed, and so on. Wait a minute, I, did I skip? I skipped a few verses, didn't I? Yeah, let's, uh, 25 is where I was. God blots out our transgressions. And he says then in verse 26, Put me in remembrance, let us plead together. Uh, Here's the one I missed, verse 27. Your first father has sinned, and your teachers have transgressed against me. Therefore I have profaned the princes of the sanctuary. It was our first father, Herbert Armstrong, and it was the ministry of the sanctuary who sinned. That's just a fact. Herbert Armstrong was called of God. He did a work of God, a calling. But he was not a perfect man. And he made some mistakes. And he allowed people in, unbeknownst in a way to him, and then when he understood who they were, he did not have the strength to get them out. And as it says there in Isaiah 39... As long as there's peace and truth in my time, even if my sons are eunuchs in Babylon, at least there's peace and truth in my time. So in some ways, he kind of gave up. And that's a true story. So he was not without sin. Now, there are people who write books who try to condemn him. That's not God's purpose here. He's just saying... Things were not what they ought to be. From the top down. From the ministry down. And therefore, I have profaned the church and brought the curse and reproached you. I am glad I went back and picked up verse 27 because that is important for us to grasp. That I as a minister was partially responsible and held more accountable than the people who were listening. And I don't want that to happen to me again, and I don't want it to happen to you again. Therefore, we hear what we hear, and we just read the Scripture and let the chips fall where they will. Okay? So, continuing with the thought where I was headed, I profaned it, yet now here, there is hope, even in all this mess that we find ourselves in in the church. He's going to explain. Yet now hear, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. So he's getting it down here, not to just the called, but he's beginning to refer to those chosen to do the work at the end. Many called, few chosen. Thus says the Eternal that made you and formed you from the womb, which will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jeshurun, another word for Israel, whom I have chosen. How many times in this context did he say fear not? Why? Because there's a lot that you could fear. There is much coming that is very fearful. But he tells us, the just shall live by faith. You are not to fear. 
Don't worry. <coughs> For I will pour water upon him that is thirsty, and floods upon the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your seed, and my blessing upon your offspring. So he's talking about converted ones here. He'll pour his spirit upon our seed and our offspring, perhaps in the millennium. Perhaps he'll even call some of our children at the end. He hasn't many of them yet. He's referring to this generation that was called when the explosion of growth in the church happened from the late 50s through the 70s. That generation will not die out until these things have come to pass. There will still be old men, as it says in Ezra and Nehemiah, who witness the building of the latter temple. And Haggai says essentially the same thing. And they shall spring up as among the grass, as willows by the watercourses. One shall say, I am the Eternals. I belong to God. I am God's. And another shall call himself by the name of Jacob. We won't be called Bill or John or Joe anymore. The names Jacob and Joseph will become popular again. And another shall subscribe with his hand to the Eternal and surname himself by the name of Israel. I am Jacob Israel. <laughs> That's saying the same thing twice, but people are going to be so excited to be a part of what God is doing that they're going to start naming their kids again by these names. Thus says the Eternal, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Beside me there is no God. Notice how often he says that in this context. The whole point he's building up to here is he is going to show the world that he is God. Now, he's trying to convince you and me right now and get us on board, fully on board. And then he's going to show the rest of the world. And he's going to use us as his witnesses that that is so. And it is going to be a very powerful witness that we can be part of. Verse 7, And who, as I, shall call and shall declare it, and set it in order for me, since I appointed the ancient people, and the things that are coming and shall come, let them show them. You can go through all history of the ancient people and to now, and nobody can show anything but that God is God as a true witness. It's the only thing that counts. Now, Satan is going to have his Jesus as his witness that he is God. And the whole world is going to line up as a witness that the false prophet is God. And they're going to be just a little group who say, no, that Jesus is not God. The living God, Emmanuel, is God. Just a few. Fear you not. Says it again. Be not afraid. Have not I told you from that time and have declared it? 
We're reading it. We're wallowing in it here. We're emphasizing it. Have not I said it? Didn't Isaiah tell you? Didn't Jeremiah? Didn't Ezekiel? Didn't Daniel? Didn't Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, you know? Didn't they tell you? Have not I told you from that time and have declared it? You are even my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? Yes, there is no God. I know not any. Let's understand the context of this. You're going to have a whole new world order saying, this is God, and you and I are the only ones who are going to be able to say, hey, wait a minute, wrong time out, that ain't God, this is God. You ready to do that? It will not be a popularity contest. We will not be popular. Except with God. It's the only one that counts. Verse 9, They that make a graven image are all of them vanity, and their delectable things shall not profit. And they are their own witnesses. They see not, nor know. And they will be ashamed. Any God but the true God is going to be found out to be not a God. The church is going to be given new teeth as a new threshing instrument to thresh the Assyrian when he comes in our land. The two witnesses will stand up against the world and bring the plagues of Egypt upon the world. These are things that are going to happen to prove who God is. And anything that they raise up to show to be God other than the true God is going to be knocked down. You see, the Egyptians worshipped flies and frogs and the things out of the river. Those were their gods. God did not by chance happen to say, well, I think I'll just make a bunch of flies. He chose those things that those Egyptians worshipped as their idols. And they suffered from their own idols. And one of their gods was their families, their firstborn sons. They put their children ahead of the true God, and their children died. Do not make the mistake of putting your physical family ahead of God. Be willing to leave behind father, mother, brother, sister, husband, wife, children, whoever, and serve the eternal. That's the message. Profitable for nothing. Verse 11, Behold, all his fellows shall be ashamed, and the workmen that are of men. Let them all be gathered together. Let them stand up. Yet they shall fear, and they shall be ashamed together. God is going to expose the new world order and Satan and his minions for what they really are. And we have to be the witnesses to stand and make this known. 
The smith with the tongs both works in the coals and fashions it with hammers and works it with the strength of his arms. Yes, he is hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches out his rule. He marks it out with a line. He fits it with planes. He marks it out with a compass and makes it after the figure of a man according to the beauty of a man that it may remain in the house. So they go to great effort to make their gods. We build up different gods in our minds at times. He hews him down cedars and takes the cypress and the oak, which he strengthens for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants an ash, and the rain does nourish it. They go to great extent to raise trees, to build their gods. We have a god of materiality in this country and the culture that goes with it. And boy, have we worked hard at it to craft it just like we want it, so that the American dream has been the envy of the whole world. Now it is becoming the American nightmare. And those people are going to go right back where they came from, as Jeremiah 50 and 51 say. Verse 15, Then it shall be for a man to burn, for he will take thereof and warm himself. Yes, he kindles it and bakes fire. Yes, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it a graven image and falls down to it. He burns part thereof in the fire. With part thereof he eats flesh. He roasts, roasts, and is satisfied. Yes, he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. Warm, I have seen the fire. So they make their gods, and they will even sometimes tear them down for their own sake, to become warm. Their gods are not lasting gods. They can be burned. Our God of our culture and our materialistic society is about to be burned up. If you've noticed, inflation is starting to hit. The price of everything is starting to go up. Gas pumps the first place, you notice. It's going to go nuts because we have created so many, many trillions of dollars chasing the same amount of goods so the price goes up. It's hitting. Our God is about to be destroyed before our very eyes. And the residue thereof, he makes a God, even his graven image. He falls down to it and worships it and prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. And God we trust, all others pay cash. We trust in the almighty dollar. Why do we call it almighty? It isn't almighty. Now, it had a lot of power at one time. It's losing it quickly. But God is the Almighty, not our materiality, not that which represents it, the American dollar. It's being destroyed before our very eyes. It will be burned up. They have not known nor understood, for He has shut their eyes that they cannot see and their hearts that they cannot understand. And He's talking to the church here, not just the world. The church has not understood and we have had our idols. And God is saying, you've got to get rid of them. I am God. And you are my witnesses that I am God. And you can't have any other gods beside me. Put me first. He keeps saying that in different ways here. Verse 19, And none considers in his heart, neither is there knowledge nor understanding to say, I have burned part of it in the fire. Yes, I also baked bread upon the coals thereof. I have roasted flesh and eaten it. And shall I make the residue thereof an abomination? Shall I fall down to the stock of a tree? 
He feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside that he cannot deliver his soul, nor say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? As our world comes apart, we're going to begin to say, What happened? This whole thing's been a lie right here in my right hand. Our whole society, our whole way of life, our capitalistic system, our so-called democracy. It was a lie. Even the church. It was a lie. We thought we were safe. We thought everything was fine. We thought we were in good with God and we are going to get our ticket and jump on a plane and go to Petra. Didn't happen, did it? Instead, we got spewed out of God's mouth. And the life we were living was exposed as hypocrisy and a lie. Because our heart was not in it. It was lip service, but not wholehearted. I'm sorry, brethren. That's the bottom line for you and me. Therefore, he says, repent and turn to me and be my witnesses that I am God. There is the challenge for you and me. Verse 21, remember these, O Jacob and Israel, spiritual Jacob here first. For you are my servant. I have formed you. How many times has he said that in this chapter and the one before? I have formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You shall not be forgotten of me. In spite of all this, and where you've been, and what you've done, and how you have worshipped idols, and your life has been lip service and hypocritical and in vain and self-righteous. I will not forget you. I have blotted out as a thick cloud your transgressions and as a cloud your sins. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. I pulled you out from this world. And I'm willing to forgive all this past. If you will be a true witness that I am God. These are scriptures that have been somewhat overlooked. But I think they are about as powerful a message as there is anywhere in the Bible. Isaiah is giving us a lot here to consider. I'm not hurrying through this. Maybe it protracts this series and makes it longer, but God is going to make a point. And we need to get it ahead of time because the new things are about to come to pass. And we're going to start reading about some of them here very shortly, and I'm running out of time for today. But in spite of our idolatry, in spite of our poor spiritual performance, And being spewed out, he said, I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to have a faithful remnant that will be my witness that I am God. It might as well be you and me as anybody else, hadn't it? Why not? Are we in? Now, he's about to say some things here about some things some of you are probably still a little skeptical about. We won't get through them today. 
But look at the build-up to this. Sing, O you heavens, for the Eternal has done it. He and He alone can forgive our sins. Shout, you lower parts of the earth. Break forth into singing, you mountains, O forest, and every tree therein. Metaphorical, but the whole world. Didn't he say earlier that even the animals of the forest and the desert would honor him? So, in metaphor, he says, the whole creation is going to sing at my deliverance. Such a joyful thing that is coming. For the Eternal has redeemed Jacob and glorified himself in Israel. If he can take thou warm Jacob, as he puts it in another place, and forgive us and clean us up so that we can witness that he is God, that is something for the whole world to sing about. Thus says the Eternal, your Redeemer and He that formed you from the womb. I am the Eternal that makes all things, that stretches forth the heavens alone, that spreads abroad the earth by myself. How many times from chapter 40 on does He keep saying, I'm the only one, I am God, I created, I made, I formed, I'm the one, there is none other but me. says it again here that frustrates the tokens of the liars and makes diviners mad, that turns wise men backward and makes their knowledge foolish. Now, God is saying here, I'm the Creator, I'm the one that made it all, and I am about to do things to prove that I am God. They're going to make all the sage, the wise, the historians, the archaeologists, all the wise of the world, with all their fine answers, I am going to drive them absolutely crazy and make them look foolish. Harvard. Northwestern. All of the fine colleges. All the professors. All the scientists. All the archaeologists scratching around in the dirt everywhere are going to be made to look like idiots when God reveals what He is about to reveal. Okay? That's what He says. That confirms the word of His servant. Who's His servant? The one right here is Isaiah. Isaiah is His servant that's telling this story. And you and I are the ones who are reading Isaiah and believing it today because it is the Word of God. And what God is about to do here in the end time with the final witness that He is God is make this whole world look absolutely stupid. Let's grasp that. That confirms the word of his servant. Now, what does Isaiah say? He says, the desolate places are going to be restored. Jerusalem, which has been desolate for many generations, will be restored. But Jerusalem in the Middle East has never been desolate. And not for many generations. And its wall doesn't need built. The wall is there. I've seen it. And you can't dig iron out of the, of the hills there because there ain't none there, never has been. 
but there is here. Now, to say Jerusalem is not there but somewhere else sounds absolutely crazy today. But mark these words of Isaiah. All the wisdom of this world is going to be made foolish. God is going to confirm the words of his servant. And Jerusalem and the cities of Judah will be built as villages without walls, as Zechariah 2 puts it, with much men and cattle there, and God will come and dwell with us, he says. Emmanuel. And it is the context of the two witnesses and the rest of the witnesses, the church who come to build his temple in the end time. And performs the counsel of his messengers. Haggai says, the people say, it isn't time to build a temple. It is not time to build a temple. The whole church says we should have a spiritual temple. So it has to be talking about a physical one because almost everyone says, no, we don't need to build a physical temple. The Jews may build one in Jerusalem, but not the church. God is calling His remnant church to build the latter temple. And nobody in the church of God today, in whatever splinter group it is, would say we're not to build a spiritual temple. But in the end time, of the witnesses and the remnant called, Haggai and Zechariah and and Revelation 11 put together, they will say it is not time to build the temple. That has to be referring to the physical one, because everybody recognizes the temple and the body, and the temple the church. All hands agree on that. But you won't find very many that think the church needs to build a physical temple. That's the one Haggai is talking about. They'll say, don't build it. It isn't time for that. Yes, it is. And Haggai's words will be confirmed and performed. That says, now here's what the message is. God makes this very clear now. That says to Jerusalem, you shall be inhabited. That Jerusalem is already inhabited. Which one isn't? The one that God says would be the habitation of lizards and coyotes, jackals. That's the one. To the cities of Judah, you shall be built. Didn't he say in Isaiah 58 that those who obey him and fast for the right reasons will be the ones who who heal the breaches, (coughs) who fix the problems? Who make the wall, who build the walls? You shall be built, and I will raise up the decayed places thereof. Not those towns over there that those so called Jews, mostly Edomites, are living in, but the ones that are desolate. They're going to be built back. That says to the deep, <clears throat> Be dry, and I will dry up your. The same God that opened the Red Sea. The same one that backed up the Jordan. That's the one we're talking about here. He's going to cause Jerusalem to be built here at the end, and he's going to perform the things that Isaiah and Haggai and Zechariah are saying. That says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd, and shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, You shall be built, and to the temple your foundation shall be laid. Now, Cyrus, 
anciently was a Gentile king of the Medes and Persians. And he was not spiritual. He was not converted. He worked with converted people like Daniel. God used a Gentile king to fund the building of the temple. And he is going to do the exact same thing again. Have a man who comes as a type of the ancient Cyrus and says to Jerusalem, it will be built and to the temple your foundation shall be laid. God is laying the groundwork here through Jerusalem and the cities of Judah and the temple to prove that he is God. It is going to be one of the primary proofs that God is God. That's why he's calling a remnant of faithful people to gather, as Haggai says, to build the temple at the end, because it will be used to prove and confirm everything that Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, the minor prophets, every prophecy in the Bible is going to come together at the end with a restoration of the original Jerusalem and the building of the physical temple there by the spiritual temple, the church. This is all coming to a climax soon. Now, is this a build-up or what? From Isaiah 40 through 44. I'm out of time. Sorry about that. But we'll pick it up and show the conclusion of the matter later on.